Hi, welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, Madhuni Christian, and this week I am joined by my new colleague, Edward Ned Russell. Ned and I um, have been covering the first, uh, the fourth quarter and full year 2020 airline results um, in the U.S. And although it was a grim year, most airlines have expressed hope that things could turn the corner this year. Give us a listen and we hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us. And I'm joined today by Edward Russell, also known as Ned. Many, many of you may know Ned from, uh, from his distinguished career so far reporting on the airlines, first to Flight Global, then TPG, and now with us at Skiff. This is his first appearance on the Airline Weekly Lounge, and I want to welcome, welcome him. Hey, hey Maju. How are you doing today? Good, good. So Ned and I have known each other. We've been friendly competitors for a long time, running buddies and friends. So I'm thrilled to be working with him now and to have him on uh, on my team. So uh, welcome. Let's Let's get to it. Sounds great. Now, this is a running podcast, right? <laughs> we, we could make it a running podcast. Actually, uh, the two of us are avid runners, and uh, although I'm usually eating Ned's dust, uh, oh, it's fun to he run He wishes. <laughs> um, so, so, Ned, uh, you know, the, it's, it's February 2nd, 2021. Most of the U.S. carriers reported their fourth quarter and full year 2020 results. We're waiting for a few. Allegiant SkyWest will go this week. There might be, you know, there. I think believe Mesa is coming. Um, though, so there are a few stragglers. Uh, but uh, you covered for Skift and for Airline Weekly the four largest U.S. carriers: United, Delta, American, and Southwest. Yes. Um, and what? I mean, we know it's a grim year, but what sort of trend lines do you see in these fourth quarter results from among those big four? Well, beyond the the terrible losses that the airline suffered in the year, uh, the majority of them are are you know cautiously optimistic about the year ahead. Uh, Delta and United actually spoke about some kind of inflection point in travel returning at some point this year. American and Southwest were a bit more reserved, but the general narrative is. The airlines think travelers are going to come back in significant numbers. We're not talking about recovery here, but significant numbers at some point in 2021. Um, so, and yeah. why why are they cautiously optimistic? I mean, the for the, anyone who follows U.S. news, you know, the vaccine rollout has been um, has been pretty fraught. Um, it, it seems like it, the new administration is, is has a team in place that's putting. Um, Putting more of an emphasis on it and uh, writing the ship, but but you know, uh, for example, I registered with the San Francisco Department of Health uh, where I live and found that I probably will not get a vaccine until well, they said sometime <laughs> this year. By the end of the year is what I got the 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 um, the notification I got, which which you know makes me wonder if people like me are not going to be vaccinated until the end of the year. Now I know Ned, you got. Um, you got a vaccine because your uh, your spouse is uh, is a medical worker, and you managed to some, to get back vaccines. That's great, but for some of us, it will be until it could conceivably be the third quarter before we're vaccinated. I can't see re- the recovery happening before then. So, so that was a long minute way of asking, <laughs> what are they seeing? Well, Madhu, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's it, it's uncertain when the majority of Americans are going to ha- have the vaccine or have access to the vaccine. And that's why you're seeing uh, the, such a wide range of, of forecasts. You see Delta saying maybe an inflection within 90 days. So that would be March, 90 April. 90 days. 
or United is a bit more cautious saying summer, but then, uh, you know, it's, I've read a few analyst reports saying we're easily into the fall. So you know, I think the key word here is uncertainty. No one knows. And that's why I, I say cautious optimism because they expect airlines expect travelers will come back in significant hours. And these are leisure travelers, not business travelers, but leisure travelers in significant numbers sometime this year. But no one knows when. They don't know if that means they need to schedule 80 percent of, of their 2019 summer schedules this summer because everyone's going to want to fly. Or is it going to be more like 60 percent because a lot of Americans still don't have the vaccine? And that's that's where we are. And a lot rests on how quickly the vaccine rollout goes. And the, the new administration has some, some ambitious goals. And if they can meet them, I think people will be, you know, even more optimistic once we get to uh, the first quarter calls. But, you know, there's still a lot of wait and see in the next few months. Well, you know, let's separate out Southwest for a second and let's talk about Delta United American and their international networks. I mean, international travel is all but at a standstill. Um, Did you get any clarity from the CEOs of those three carriers on when? when they see international, their international network starting to resume, and which, which one among those three is probably thinks it's best positioned to, to jump on demand when, when it starts to return? Well, I'm going to take the second half of that question first, Madhu. Okay. Um, United particularly thinks it's well positioned to to jump on international demand when it returns, and their argument is is essentially you know they are the largest international U.S. international carrier uh, before the crisis, and they have flown uh, repeatedly uh, regularly the largest international schedule since the crisis began. Not because there's necessarily passengers, but because they've been carrying a lot of cargo, and. Uh, what they're seeing is the international marketplace is changing because, like you said, traffic is at a near standstill. You have disruptors like Norwegian that has really uh, put pressure on transatlantic fares for the past, you know, half decade, 2013, right. I want to say. You know, they've exited the long haul market. You have Asiana being acquired by Korean Air, which is undoubtedly going to take some Trans-Pacific capacity out after right. that integration's done. And United thinks that they're especially well positioned to take advantage of that, to take advantage of that across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. Um, you know, the one market that stands that they didn't mention was South America. And interestingly, American has said that they think they're going to benefit in South America. But then again, if you look at each airline's regional uh, dominance, you know, United is bigger on the transatlantic and the transpacific and American is a leader in South America. So it kind of each carrier thinks they're going to play to their own strengths on that. Now, the first part of your question on when international is going to return, um, that's really looking like a 2021 kind of uh, 2021 kind of recovery. Maybe we're going to get some towards the end of this year, but airlines are really looking at that as a 2021 story. You mean 2022? Yes. uh, As you can see with the continuing pandemic, I'm still think it's 2020, but yes, 2022 story is correct. Well, it's like the 300th day of March, 2020, right? Yes. Now, I mean, in the interest of fair disclosure, I used to work for United. Um, The, the, um, you know, what's interesting about Hearing you talk about United and in an American with Latin America is, uh, you know, Delta America United really optimized their networks and their product offerings to the business traveler. But you're not hearing a lot of that right now. And and are they so when you when when those three carriers talked about the international recovery, what did they have to say about business travel coming back? And is the international recovery going to be VFR and leisure? 
It's going to be VFR and Leisure initially, uh, but they do expect the business travelers to come back. United, for one, is using the crisis to complete their Polaris uh, seat retrofits on the 787s, which you know, is a bit counterintuitive when you think you're, going to, you're, you're trying to cut cash burn and you're, here you're going to go invest in a premium product. But really, their, their logic is once business travel does come back, whether you know, 2022 or later, that they will then be able to offer a consistent product, and that's going to capture you know more travelers in their perspective at least but i think it's going to be leisure vfr first that said towards the end of the year as as companies become comfortable sending some people out on the road i think you will see some of that travel come back especially in big markets like london new york probably is going to come back i when i say come back i don't mean recover but it's business travelers will start trickling back in as we get towards the end of 2021 and stuff. So now yeah. I'm curious, Ned, did, did any of them say whether they're seeing leisure travelers in the premium cabin? Uh, so the reason I ask is that uh, I spoke to um, an executive at Qatar Airways recently who said they are actually actively marketing their, um, their premium product to le- leisure travelers because that business travel is all but gone. So did, did any of the big three U.S. carriers say anything about that? You know, no one mentioned that specifically, uh, though – yeah, no one spoke to that specifically. I mean, I could only harbor a guess to say that, yes, there are more leisure travelers purchasing business class tickets, but considering where demand is, it's pro- they're probably discounted business class tickets, yeah. so it's not exactly <laughs> not exactly a yield premium or something there. But I guess it's, you know, it's, already, it's better to have someone paying $1,000 for a business class seat rather than $500 for an economy seat if you're an airline on the same flight. So, uh, But they did not speak specifically to that, no. Okay. That, that I'd be curious. I mean, uh, there's really no easy way to find that out unless they actually admit it, but uh, I'd be curious to see how that works. Now, let's turn to their uh, domestic networks, and please include Southwest in this. I mean, yes. Southwest has gone a little nuts, if you ask me, <laughs> in the last six months. And nuts in a, I mean, they're more nuts. Well, no, it, it's, it's a bit crazy. I remember when I was growing up and you know watching Southwest, and it was a big deal when they announced one city a year. <laughs> right. And here we are at 12 cities during the pandemic. They've announced 12, you know, either begun service or announced 12 new cities since the pandemic began and we're talking we're not even a year in i mean that's bonkers for southwest but they see an opportunity to to grow when others are down and you know kudos to them if it works yeah they've always zigged where others zagged but uh um, did they say anything about business travel recovering and let and you know let's sort of use them as a hook to talk about the other three to see if they uh anyone said anything about domestic business travel and, and the breakdown with leisure Domestic business travel is still very low. It has come back. I, I forget the exact number, but I believe Southwest said that they're seeing about 15%, uh, mm-hmm. 15 to 20% of, of business bookings pre-pandemic currently. So we're still talking low, low numbers, but that is much better than it's not last summer when we were at probably 5%. So um, the, the business travelers that are back tend to be smaller businesses, you know, companies that don't have large corporate travel um, policies, you know, where, you know, I, I can't say, you know, I'm imagining that this, you know, it's an owner deciding, yes, it's safe for, for me to go and visit my customers rather than, you know, having to go to his board or something. I'm not yeah. clear on exa- that approvals, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's dive into that a little bit because I was talking to a few analysts, um, early, uh, last month, it's January in January, um, about what we're, this, this new thing we're hearing from airline executives. I mean, it always used to be divided business and leisure. You know, leisure might have been subdivided into holiday and, and VFR. But now you're hearing sort of, you know, Ed Bastian said it last year. Um, 
I, I heard it on the Alaska call when I covered them. You're hearing about the segmentation of the business market from large corporates large corporates and sort of small to medium-sized businesses. And they're looking at that more closely because, as you pointed out, small, medium-sized businesses are getting back on their road, right? Definitely. That, you know, that is very interesting. Now, you know, it's going to be interesting if they start to officially break that out. Um, but they are seeing a div- uh, divergence uh, between the large corporates and the big accounts that, you know, I'm picturing the Apples and the Microsofts yeah. and stuff versus, you know, the, you know, small company that employs 50 people and they want to, you know, try to drum up some sales during this downtime and stuff. They are, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, it could be the beginning of a new segment. Um, we'll see. That's still early days, but yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that, that is interesting. You know, first of all, large businesses have uh, stricter travel policies. They have duty of care uh, requirements with HR. And also when you think of it, you know, if you're some, if you're a company like say, let's just Procter and Gamble, and you don't need to actually go and sell Tide. I hope Tide is made by Procter and Gamble because if it's not, I'll sound like a raving idiot. But, but you know, you don't need you don't actually need to go visit your customers to sell these products because right. you have existing contracts. But if you're right. you know Ned's widget company with your ten employees and you need to sell your widgets, you're going to be out on the road more now. You're going to take that risk right. because you need to make those sales and. Right. Zooms, you're you're not going to be able to like Procter and Gamble and Tide be able to conclude a sale over Zoom, right? So I'm curious to see how this will break out and whether, as you mentioned, whether airlines will actually start to segment their business reporting about business travel into small, medium, and large. Um, So um, and now let's turn to leisure. I mean, what did you see? What did you hear about? uh, Was did they discuss any of the those four airlines that you covered? Did they discuss a, a breakdown? Uh, between VFR and holiday travel and where they're seeing demand? They did not break those two categories down, though they all noted that leisure includes VFR and holiday goers. Um, It's still, you know, it's the same trends we've been seeing for months. Uh, Beach destinations, outdoor destinations are seeing stronger demand than Mm -hmm. places like New York or, you know, Chicago that have stricter restrict quarantine restriction. Well, I say quarantine, but stricter COVID restrictions yeah. and stuff. Um, and that, I mean, it's still, and it's leisure is still driving the recovery uh, to, as we speak, you know, but it's still choppy. Uh, we're in the winter doldrums. As everyone knows, this is a low point for leisure and leisure is not, not come back uh, to the levels seen, but you know, leisure is not at 2019 levels by any uh, stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, airlines are sort of uh, you know, bumping along. I don't want to say the bottom, but a low point in the recovery, uh, you know, curve at this point. Right. Uh, many airlines are expecting similar comparable comps to the fourth quarter are going to be the same. Yeah, I mean, this is always a tough period for airlines in the best of times. But uh, spring break is looming, and that's usually a a period where airlines start to start to see their business pick up for the year. Um, I, several analysts have said this year's spring la- spring break could just be gone. Uh, what, I- what are you hearing from those four airlines you covered? I mean, Delta was probably the most optimistic about spring break. Uh, you know, I told you their comments about potentially 90 days being ready for spring break. Yeah. Uh, Southwest did say that they're seeing some increased bookings around the spring break, spring break period, but 
you know, I think it's still anyone's guess whether that happens. And I'm wondering if it's also going to be regional. You know, there's a lot of people in the Northeast, California, um, states that have stricter COVID rules may forego spring break this year, whereas you see people in states that have less stricter rules uh, be willing to get on a plane and fly somewhere. You know, I suspect that we're going to see those trends, but, you know, it's a broad-based recovery isn't going to happen until we have wide availability of vaccines, which, like we said, is anyone's guess at this point. Now, for those of you listening, um, <laughs> you may or may not know this, you, you might know this, uh, that Ned is a nerd when it comes to roots and loved, <laughs> loves like uh, diving into Sirium data and, and looking at various routes. Now, Ned, there's been a lot of, I mean, I, I, some of the things I've been covering this industry or working this industry for almost 20 years, and some of the things I've seen in the last year have just been eye-popping. I mean... Will we see, do you think we'll see more of these things like United's doing, flying more point to point? Um, will there be, you know, less focus on the hubs and more, do you think more airlines to capture that, you know, leisure and VFR travel? Do you think you'll see, we'll see more airlines doing non-hub, overflying their hubs to go directly to sun and fun locations? I think if it's making the, making money, yes, definitely. Uh, at least until they need those planes to fly lucrative business traveler routes. I mean, and that could be a couple of years. In a couple of years, I think anything anything's possible. But if those routes are making airlines money, I don't see why they would drop them at this point, frankly. Because um, right now it's about making money where you can get mo- where you can find it. So you know, there's, yeah, why drop a route if it's bringing bringing cash <laughs> to the bank? Did. Any of those four carriers say how big they expect to be? And the reason I'm asking this is, uh, you know, the federal funding for um, airline employees, the payroll support program expires in, at the end of March. Um, did, did any of those airlines give an estimate on, on how big they plan to be, like 25% smaller, 30% smaller, anything like that? This summer? Uh, for this year. For this year. No, no one was really willing to give a full year forecast on that. I mean, a lot of them shied away from from being, you know, even giving a, a number for the summer. You know, I think the, the number that everyone jumped at was Americans said that they could return to 2019 levels by the end of the year on, I want to say, 110 fewer planes, which is right. about 12% of their fleet. They weren't saying they were going to do that, but they said they could, which was more an example of how much efficiency that they are gaining from the COVID crisis by retiring older planes and upgaging and everything. Then it is to say that they're going to be back there. But uh, I want to, you listen to this call, I think Alaska said 80% by year end or JetBlue said that. Uh, Do you remember? Yeah. And that's, that's the, uh, I mean, that's the highest number I've really heard from any, any of the airlines in terms of 2021 capacity. But I think summer, while I'm sure it's going to be above 2020, I, I doubt that it's going to be um, anywhere close to that 80% number. Yeah. I mean, Alaska did say they're they're banking on, sun, as they put it, sun and fun locations. They think they have a, a network that's optimized for it. And they also um, they also just, just think the, the way their network is, you know, they're, they're focusing on Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Um and not as much on the transcons that they were. Right. So, um, which is funny because they just spent uh, how many uh, two point five billion acquiring your former employee Virgin America a few years my ago. Other and- former employer, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, what, what's, what's interesting about Alaska was the uh, the air the fleet moves. I thought, uh, you know, finally retiring 
the A320 family fleet. Keeping the 10 A321s, which is, you know, interesting. So they'll have that fleet complexity. And then... I don't know if it's so interesting, because if you look at the leases on those jets, they extend a good five plus years past the 320 fleet, you know? And there's a lot higher, uh, you know, return penalties the earlier in the lease you terminate. So it's... uh, Yeah. I love how I keep... Everyone tells me that they really like the 321 Neos, and I don't doubt that the 321 Neo is a good aircraft and does good things, but... um, I really wonder how much of the keeping is is a weight on you know the penalties they would face, or do they really like the how much they like the plane? Uh, I'd love to really get the sense of uh, <laughs> that that split, but I'm sure they're both part of the calculus. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, everyone likes the every airline likes the three twenty one, um, and says you know those that, that missed out on ordering it have, have publicly said how how they wish they had it so but i it's still i mean it's a small fleet sub fleet right it's only 10 aircraft and they still have to maintain that fleet complexity and staffing complexity so i mean when do the penalties outweigh all of that and how much of it is desirability of the aircraft itself that is a good question and that's that's one of my favorite conversations to have with the united cfo jerry laterman we always uh, he always has a good uh, good talk about it's just a matter of weighing how much the cost of complexity is versus the benefits you get uh, from having the fleet. So right. yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of fleet, uh, Hawaiian said it's keeping the seven one sevens for the foreseeable future, which I think might make you happy, Ned. Don't don't you have some <laughs> love for that aircraft? <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about, Maju, at all. Um, no, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't hear them that they had said that, but. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, why take on the capital costs of buying a new plane when you probably got a solid decade left of life in the seven one sevens? Well, they're um, they're, they're yeah. sticking to their middle of the decade retirement target date, and and you know, COVID has not and the lack of demand has not actually accelerated that, which is what in- Peter Ingram said. Uh, well, you know, which I think that they're just uh, it's kind of an interesting aircraft and uh the other major major operator of that aircraft is retiring them as fast as they can so um as fast as we can they can yeah, do i mean maybe really 2025 is not exactly a it's a figure of speech it's a figure <laughs> of speech <laughs> but uh yeah any um so what what else have you learned from from these earnings calls ned what are we going to look at for say uh i don't know if you had to look in your crystal ball well, actually, uh, I could look at my crystal ball right now because I just read your story uh, about uh, JetBlue <laughs> tripling its flights to LaGuardia. Talk about that. Yeah. So um, there's an internal staff memo sent out uh, earlier this week with JetBlue sort of outlining its growth plans in uh, New York and Boston under the new uh, America alliance it has with American Airlines. And that includes uh, tripling flights, uh, potentially tripling flights at LaGuardia and then adding uh, double digit increases at JFK Newark and Boston as well. Uh, we knew this was coming. I think the, the numbers are higher than most people expected in terms of how many flights JetBlue would add. Because uh, we have to remember JF, uh, JFK and LaGuardia are both slot controlled. So right. American is leasing uh, those slots to JetBlue as part of the partnership. Um, and so I think we're going to see some interesting changes there. Now, there are some pending reviews at the DOJ and That's the, the Justice Department. Yes, the Justice Department and the New York's Attorney General's office. But uh, American is confident that they will not stop the partnership. And frankly, they can implement the partnership with their current approval. Uh, if there was a ruling, they would then probably have to roll something back. But right now they can move forward as planned. Um, 
But that's really going to change the competitive scene in, I think, New York, for sure, where you've had American uh, as this sort of in-between player. They didn't have a large hub in the New York area like Delta and United, but they weren't they weren't just they weren't a small player either. You know, they they've always had a large slot portfolio at JFK and LaGuardia, not the largest. You know, it's one of those things where it's it's hard to be second. Yeah. Um, really, I think they were third if we look at New Account United Newark, but they they were in a tough spot. So here they are. They're gonna they're gonna gain. JetBlue's gonna be sort of their feeder, as as some have described them in the New York area, and it's gonna be an interesting game. And I'm really curious to see what they do with those slots uh, as we go forward. You know, one thing about LaGuardia is that it does have a perimeter, so JetBlue right. can't just fly anywhere. So the the radius of destinations they can go to are, is pretty much limited to, you know, the Midwest and and the East Coast. So yeah, um, I'm curious. There was on the JetBlue call that you listened to, Scott Lawrence mentioned uh, destinations in the Southeast, on the yep. coast in the Southeast U.S. as possibilities. So. I mean, there's not too many, but the Savannahs, Charlestons, Wilmingtons, Myrtle Beaches yeah. of, uh, you know, could all see new flights. So, and he mentioned yeah. the Midwest specifically as well, because that's, did? That's, okay. that's an area of the country that JetBlue has absolutely very, very little presence now. And this this will, you know, um, as they're going to their corporate customers for sales, this, this is definitely an arrow in their quiver. Um, now, how, sure. many, how, many, um, how many slots had to be divested as part of this? This arrangement. Uh, the airlines have to divest seven pairs at JFK, which um, you know, yeah, is is not that many, but n- enough. And then six pairs at DCA, and it's interesting they include DCA is included because it's not actually a market that's covered by the alliance. That's Though, a, I, excuse me, that's Washington Reagan uh, National. <laughs> yes, Washington <laughs> National. Sorry, that's Washington residents uh, often refer to it as DCA, um, but it. it Washington National is one of the most sought-after slot-controlled airports in the country. So I think, and because many of those slots are used for flights to the Northeast, Boston and New York, that's why I imagine it was included in the DOT's divestitures that were required. Um, The plans are to hold two auctions. Uh, Each, the JFK and Washington uh, slots will be auctioned off. Each is their own package. And uh, blind bidders. So we'll, you know, that'll probably happen relatively soon and we'll see who gets them. But as it stands, Delta, United, Spirit, Southwest have all expressed interest. So it probably is going to be a fairly heated bidding war. Would be yeah, well, guess. those are some, some, air, those are airports that everyone, every airline seems to, that needs to be in. And those, uh, those slots are come up as rarely as hen's teeth. Well, Ned, (laughs) I want to thank you for joining us. I know I I will be twisting your arm to join us many, 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 many more times in the future. I'm thrilled you're on the team now. And uh, yeah, thanks. Well, Madhu, as long as I propose that we record a podcast while running the Bay Trail by the SFO runway so we can give listeners some, you know, real time uh, audio plane takeoffs in in, the we could do that. And, you know, Ned, I'm sure you'll be capable of uh, of holding forth on the airline industry while you're running. Meanwhile, I'll be gasping and we don't want to actually subject our listeners to any of that. All right, Ned, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Madhu. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. And of course, Check out AirlineWeekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.